Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Once that trust has been lost, it takes a lot to get it back. This is Death, Sex, and Money. He does not know what a police officer is or what a hand on the butt of a gun means. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Will they shoot him because he didn't respond? And need to talk about more. When you have lack of training, these things occur. I'm Diane Gilmorris, in for Anna Sale. And recently, I talked to a woman named Maria Caldwell. Hey, Maria, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi. Hi. Maria lives in St. Paul, Minnesota. She has four kids. Her only son, Marcus, is 18. And last summer, on his way home from the Minnesota State Fair, Maria says Marcus got beat up pretty badly. Probably all parents fear that someone is going to harm their child, but never, ever has it once came to my mind that that person that would offend my child would be an officer. Marcus and his two friends were waiting for the train at a light rail station. They were horsing around. Marcus stepped onto the tracks and then got back onto the platform. According to a pending lawsuit, two Metro Transit officers approached Marcus and asked him if he was drunk. They also asked to see his ID. When he said he didn't have one, the officers tried to detain him. Police reports say there was a struggle, and then Marcus was taken down to the ground by an officer and put in a neck restraint. But when did you find out what happened to him? Actually, a neighbor that was driving down the street is the one who called me. No one ever called me. No one ever contacted me. While he did eventually go to the hospital, they wouldn't even let me see him for four hours. The Metro Transit Police wouldn't let me see him in the hospital for four hours. And then once you saw him, what was your reaction? I was ready to take a vengeance for my son, (laughs) to say it nicely. I was uh, just devastated and crying, and he had a busted head, busted lip. He had um, choke marks on his neck. He had uh, what they told me was an impression of maybe something um, pressing down on his neck other than the arm or hand. He was beat up like he had got hit by the train and survived. We reached out to the Metro Transit Police about this incident. They declined to comment. The two officers, in the response to that pending lawsuit's complaint, had denied all the allegations. But Maria's story about her son Marcus 
really scares me, because Marcus is autistic, like my two sons, Kenny and Theo. You might remember that I talked about them last year on Death, Sex, and Money. My older son, Kenny, is about the same age as Marcus, and Marcus is black, like my boys. I hear stories like this about interactions gone wrong between police and autistic people, particularly those of color, and I think, how do I make sure that something doesn't go wrong between the police and my kids? Today, I'm going to introduce you to someone else who's been trying to figure out the answer to that same question for himself and for the people in his community, like Maria. I can't make up for what another department did, and I can't apologize for what a department did. But she lives in the city of St. Paul, and I want to make sure that we never have an instance like that ever happening again. This is Robert Zink. He's an officer in the St. Paul Police Department, and he has two sons with autism. Jerry's more Asperger's, mm-hmm. uh, so he, he really doesn't present as being on the spectrum in most cases, but he does have the Aspie tendencies. He, he can't, the, the reading of the social cues has always been a major problem. And so uh, your younger one, he's, uh, he's 11? Correct. Tell me a little bit about him. Gabe is the human tornado is the best way to describe him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he's always moving. He's always funny. He's always creative. He's totally unique in his own own being, and there's no one like him. He has this weird ability of it's a flash memory where, you know, he can be in a room for two seconds and be able to memorize and know everything that's in there and see it with precision. Yes, we've we've learned never to doubt our our younger son when it, whenever he says we go to the grocery store, he says we need something. It's like buy it. He almost is. He's always right. <laughs> um, and it's happened to me an ungodly number of times where um, we're ready to leave the house, and get in the car, and my son Gabe will go, "Dad, you don't have your phone." And then it's like, "Okay, where's my phone?" Every time, it's, it's exactly where he says it is. For most of his career, Officer Zink kept his home life with his kids and his work life as a police officer separate. But then, about three years ago, his commander came to him with a problem. We had several bad incidences, you know, with police contact with those on the spectrum. And commander got a hold of me and said, hey, Rob, I have no background on this. And they said, your sons are on the spectrum. Is there anything you can help us with? What, what were the issues? What, what, was, what was it about the interaction that went wrong? Well, um, officers may not read the cues of what the person is presenting because oftentimes some of these, these cues, other officers may view them as cues of, is it a drug interaction? Is it a mental health issue? And read those cues wrong. And then when they make their approach, the simple act of just touching somebody on the arm to go, hey, come with me, now turns into a fight because the reaction of the touch, the officer reads it as an act of aggression, and we go down one path, and it gets worse and worse, and now suddenly you have a fight between someone on the spectrum and a police officer that can turn kind of rough, unfortunately. And when when you were reviewing those instances where things didn't go right, what was your emotional reaction to that as a father? Well, one, um, I never want to see something like that happen to my sons just because something they did was misinterpreted. And then having to get in a physical confrontation with a police officer scares me because my son Gabe at 11 
is a very tall, big kid. And if you looked at him, you might look and say he's 14, 15 years old and he's 11. You know, so the idea of an 11 year old at, at five foot eight, five foot nine, he has the mind of an 11 year old on the spectrum. If a police officer comes up to him, you know, there could be varying circumstances. It, it wouldn't really happen with him just because he has so much interaction with police officers. But if if his father wasn't a police officer, what would those interactions end up being? This is something that I think about a lot because I know that those interactions can end up being deadly. Just a few years ago, police were called to a home outside of Chicago after a 15-year-old autistic boy got upset. The officers followed the boy into the basement and he slashed an officer's arm with a knife. In response, the officers shot and killed him. One of the problems with police work is our standard response to things generally has the inverse reaction with those on the spectrum. You know, greater command presence, you know, yelling, shouting out orders actually makes things worse instead of trying to, you know, show your authority to control a situation. And you've got to learn what it's going to take for you to back down, try to figure out what things you can key on that they may be saying or reacting to. You know, if you can take a different approach... It'll make your job as a police officer so much better. Officer Zink now teaches other officers how to recognize the signs of autism through the program he founded called the St. Paul Care Project, which stands for Cops Autism Response Education. And he teaches cops how to interact with people on the spectrum, especially when they're in crisis. As officers, you have to treat it as a safety issue first, the number one thing is, a common term we use is make sure the scene is safe. And then if you're able to make the assessment this person's on the spectrum, the route you take of how you handle the situation is vastly different than dealing with uh, a neurotypical person. Do you see your children in the people that you encounter in the community when you're dealing with crisis situations? Yeah, I do. Uh, it, it, it's all the little behaviors. Um, I think the key thing for me that's been helpful in this job is taking a lot of the calming techniques I've worked with my own children. One of the common techniques I use if a kid's in that crisis meltdown mode is, okay, we're not going to talk. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to go for a walk. When you're ready to talk, talk. And I've had it where I've gone a mile and a half when it's 90 degrees out in full police uniform with, you know, bulletproof vests. You know, I'm about to pass out because it's it's so hot and I'm sweating. <laughs> and then finally at about a mile and a half, they're, you've brought that energy level down. So now they're ready to talk. Time is always your number one. You know, I've, I have had an instance where I had one, one, one kid. It took me 45 minutes to talk him down. And he was destroying everything in the living room, everything in his bedroom, smashing stuff. But just by spending some time talking, walking, trying to get him calmed down, it, it worked, and you, no physical interaction was needed. But most cops probably wouldn't do that. I agree, but that's why we're trying to change the whole scenario on this. And if if you're not dealing with a life or death situation, obviously someone with a knife, someone with a gun, 
and there's nobody else in potential harm's way, slow down, stop, and take your time. Because 45 minutes of talking somebody down versus six hours of paperwork because you, you had to take action or use force or had to book them. I'm sorry, I'll take the 45 minutes any day. But then obviously at some point, sometimes physical interaction is the is necessary, perhaps because someone's yeah. in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had, in, I've had instances with it and it's it's gotten very physical trying to restrain them because they've gotten to a point where they're either going to harm themselves or harm somebody else. And you, you're not, what people have to realize, you're not looking at it as this is a police criminal action that I'm going to be taking them to jail. You're looking at it as a, as a medical issue because taking one of these kids to jail or one of these people's on the uh, adults on the spectrum when they're having that kind of issue, jail is not the place for them. So um, when you are looking at the news and some of these instances that have happened um, just even a month or so ago when um, in Florida – when there was an autistic man who had ran from his uh, group home and his uh, support worker was trying to get him to come back and um, officer ended up aiming at the autistic man and shot the support worker instead. Um, what's, I mean, what's your reaction? Is, I, I can, you must have a, a dual reaction both as a, as a police officer and a parent, and I'm wondering how you, what your feeling is when you hear something like that. The reaction is the same as an officer and and as a parent uh, is they didn't under uh, this is from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. I think the police assessment should have been to stand back and let the caretaker do what he needed to do because I will do that as a even though I deal with kids on the spectrum on a constant basis. I will not be able to communicate with someone that severely on the spectrum and that you need the individual that has a a direct one-to-one contact with that person to be able to understand what they're trying to communicate and how they can be calmed down. So when you see something like that instance, are you thinking that person needs to lose their job or that person needs to place criminal charges to that officer? I, I can't make that assessment because there, there's too many other variables. Did something go wrong there? Yes. But what needs to go further from there? I, I, I don't have that direct answer because I, I don't understand what their training is. Every every department is different. Was it lack of training? Was it uh, just a mistake? Was it there's, – there's, there's so many variables to make a, a judgment of what should happen to that officer is, is something I can't really comment on. Does it make you angry? It's a sad situation anytime someone gets shot. So there's a reaction to that, but making snap judgments and assessments based on limited information is is not not a good thing to do. The police shooting of that caregiver, Charles Kinsey, is still under investigation. Coming up, I talk with Officer Zink about some of my fears, that my son's skin color could put them in harm's way. And I find out more about how Officer Zink juggles his duties as a cop and his duties as a father. The amount of time you spend not at work, running them to therapy, running them to other special eds or special needs stuff you have to do, 
it's a lot of time, a lot of dedication for a parent to do it, much less also doing your full workload and actually trying to have a, an active personal life. So how do you handle it? I don't have an active personal life. <laughs> you yes, know what I'm talking I about, can though. I relate to that. <laughs> Hello? Hi, Diane. Hey, Anna. Hi, how are you? I am doing great. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How's baby I'm June? She's good. She's <laughs> getting bigger every day. Awesome. So how was the experience of hosting this episode for you? It was amazing. The whole experience was just kind of like, I can't believe I get to do this. I, I want to ask you about... Have your sons, have, have Kenny and Theo interacted much with police officers? Well, the only time we ever had to call police was uh, Kenny was about eight and uh, we had a chain link fence around our backyard. And what I did not know was that Kenny could climb the chain link fence. And so oh I was inside the house. Theo was inside. Kenny was outside. I was thinking he's good. I go out to check on him and he's not there. Um, I, you know, searched my house, couldn't find him, uh, called the police, um, you know, and actually they were amazing. They came, went looking for him. They found him. Uh, they got him to get into the car with them, brought him back home. Um, and they were very understanding um, and very good with uh, Kenny. Thankfully, that's been our only real interaction. Uh, you know, certainly now my kids are a lot older. And so I'm trying to get the boys uh, more associated with the police in our area. Oh, what are you doing? Well, so um, Kenny loves to bake. And so what we did was we made a batch of cookies and took them down to the police station. Um, my big challenge is finding a recipe that um, doesn't intrigue Kenny so much that he eats them all before we can get to the police station. <laughs> <laughs> what were the cookies that uh, What were the cookies that didn't make the cut that, that I, made it to the police office? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Kenny is not a big fan of chocolate. So we made oatmeal oh, cookies, but we put chocolate it. chips in. Yes, we, we put chocolate chips in them instead of raisins, which he was not amused by. He was very annoyed when we did that. <laughs> um, but he ate a few of them, but just wasn't like, you know, his usual, let me just polish all these off kind of attitude. So yeah. we were able to salvage enough of them to get to the police station. <laughs> Diane, what made you decide to do this police outreach like what was the what was the the the, the event that, that made you say this is what we need we need to get this done and we need to start doing that I don't know if it was a specific event or just pretty much everything that's happened in the past year year and a half right I mean we've had there have just been so many instances involving black men in police and you know, also, I just look at my boys and I just recognize that people don't see what they used to see. People used to see these really cute kids. And when they were having trouble, nobody, I think of the stares that maybe I get now, the way people react is just different because um, they feel like this could potentially turn into a dangerous situation. And I have to recognize that, you know, police officers may have that same reaction um, that if one of the boys is having a tough time at the moment, that they may consider this to be a danger and be thinking about how they need to protect others and protect themselves and not thinking about what they need to do to help bring this situation to a calm and peaceful conclusion. Yeah. Well, Diane, it's so nice to talk to you again. And I, I am so glad 
that we got to do this with you and, and we can continue to, to, to hear from you and, and also hear the questions that you have for this mom and for this police officer. I, I'm really, I'm just so glad we got to do this. It was so great to talk to them. It was such a uh, really interesting and enlightening conversation. And, um, and of course, it was absolutely my honor and privilege to do it. Uh, I enjoyed it so much. And here's what's coming up next week on Death Sucks and Money. Ellen Burstyn here. I'm filling in for Anna next week, and I'll be talking with writer, political activist, and feminist organizer, and my friend, Gloria Steinem. I realized in later life that most people feel safe at home and maybe not so safe outside. I was always the reverse. I felt not so safe at home, so I got it reversed. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Diane Gilmorris, in for Anna Sale. As a parent of two special needs kids, I know that balancing work, parenting, health, relationships, it's all a daily challenge. So I was curious to know more about how Officer Zink finds that balance. It's clear that his wife is a big part of that equation. Her name is Patina Park. They've been married for 15 years. She runs the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center, which serves American Indian women and their families. Whenever my wife introduced me, because when she tells her people or she's worked with that her husband's a police officer and her being a Native American female, they expect to meet another officer of color and they see a big, big <laughs> white guy. They kind of go, like, that's your husband? But so she works full-time? Full-time. I know that's, that's something that um, my husband and I have, have, have tried and failed at, the idea of both of us working full-time jobs. Um, it becomes too stressful for the family. Um, We've been lucky because what it used to be is, is my wife's running joke was we used to live as two single parents because I worked nights, she worked days, and we'd see each other a couple times a week. <laughs> but w with her work transitions, my work transitions, and the boys getting older, being able to adapt, you know, it hasn't been nearly the issue and when you actually have two decent incomes coming in, the flexibility to do some stuff is, you know, isn't isn't so stressful. The flexibility is everything, isn't it? It's just um, oh, it's, it's everything. It's huge. And and one of the things I've seen, and and this goes for all the, almost all the families. I'm, I probably work consistently with probably about twenty families on a regular basis. You know, the ability to just as a parent, to have a date night is is hard, yeah. or the ability, you know, to have some you know, time to yourselves, independent of your kids, because you're at the point of I worked, I had to do whatever with my children, 
that suddenly it seems that all the other thing I'm doing is sleeping. And I'm sure you've had those experiences. Yes, <laughs> I'm familiar. Um, so uh, how has it impacted your relationship with your wife? I know the time is obviously really difficult. We've, we've learned our limitations. We always knew our limitations. And uh, my wife is an attorney by trade. So she understands law enforcement, you know, with with her previous work background. So we've learned never yell, never fight. And if we get to a point where we think we're in that angry mode that we've – it's kind of the things you've learned with your children is once you start to see them get peaked out is the last thing you want to do is kind of push those issues. You want to try to find a, a diverting way to deal with your the problem at the time. And it's worked well for me and my wife for all these years. So there's always there's always stresses in any marriage and any family, especially with special needs kids. But I don't think it's been a problem for us. Yeah, I know. Um, with me and my husband, it's been uh, it, we've we've it's it's been stressful, but we've developed a really strong partnership in making sure that everybody's taken care of, including each other. My wife said, "There's no way she could do it on her own, and there's no way I could do it on my own." Because I'm sure you have the same kind of perspective too. You couldn't do it without your husband. Your husband couldn't do it without you. Oh yeah, right. Yes, exactly. And, uh, yes, I've, I've told my husband as well. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, um, he, uh, my husband, um, about eight or nine years ago, he had a he had a ruptured brain aneurysm and Ooh. recovered, and he's fine. But I was just like, don't you even think about dying on me? <laughs> that is not allowed. That is not an option. Does between your job and raising your boys, do you ever just feel emotionally drained? Uh, yes. And and what do you do? Do you have do you have you ever seen a therapist, or do you have somebody to talk to about that? Or I talk to my wife. Mm-hmm. My wife is is my outlet. Police work nowadays is independent of other stuff is stressful enough as it is, you know, and and you have to kind of work with yourself and understand, you know, you, you can't go down that rabbit hole of of emotional hell because if you feed on it, you'll never get back out. And. Otherwise, you know, I've had, I'm lucky enough to have a good support structure, whether it be with the police, my wife, my own extended family, that I, I don't think it's been an issue for me. Well, I, I, I applaud that. I, just, I know that I, could, I, I just try to imagine because as a, as a parent and I'm raising these two kids and I often find myself just emotionally drained um, and I don't have a stressful job. My job doesn't require me to interact with people in a crisis situation or put myself in danger at all. So the idea of that on top of these challenges um, just seems to me, in my in my mind, seems to be, it could be overwhelming. And there's many a days you just get home and go, honey, I don't want to talk. I just want to veg out whether it means playing video games for a couple hours or it means just laying on the bed or just going for a walk for two hours. You know, 
there's those nights like that. You just don't know how to react to it, but you, you have to have your outlet mechanisms to be able to deal with it. One thing that um, also comes up for me as I'm a black woman, my children are black young men, and um, the the challenge of the fact that they have autism and are black um, is something that I just think about a lot. (laughs) Um, How do you see the the issue of race playing into police interactions with people with autism? Uh, It's hard for me to say because... Most of the my families I work with are families of color, you know, um, and I think that more has to do at the economic level than it does, you know, as a race-based issue per se. Because many of those in the community that haven't had access to services are going to have more interactions and more contacts with police. Unfortunately, economically, the disparities between the black community, the Hispanic community, the Asian community versus the white community, you know, is vastly different. One of the things that you were talking about earlier, this um, question of uh, whether or not somebody's on the spectrum or perhaps on drugs or something is something that I worry about a lot. I have a son who talks to himself a lot, and I'm always worried that if, as he gets, he's only 15 now, but as he gets older and becomes an adult, if somebody would misinterpret that as being on drugs or something like that. My fear is always that an officer sees a black man and they will immediately go to the idea of this being a person on drugs versus this being a person with disability. Uh, In the media, most of the people that we see with autism are white. Uh, The idea that I don't think a lot of people are aware that there's a really large population of minority children and adults with autism. Um, And so I feel like an officer just may make an assumption because he just doesn't really think of autistic, autistic people being of color. And I hope that's something I change uh, because one social group, the Somali community up here in Minnesota, the ratio is not the 62 or the or the 82 to 1. It's astronomically high in the Somali community. And that's not brought up much. And now if you suddenly have... A, a dispropor- that large disproportionate number of kids on the spectrum, you know, you're going to be dealing with a lot of, whether it's now or in five years, you're going to be dealing with those those issues, especially in that community. I wonder with, like you said, most many of the families that you work with are of color. Do they ever tell you that they are afraid to call the police? Well, unfortunately, what I've gotten is more parents have me on speed dial, and they they call me directly. And and what a lot of times happens is if I'm not working or if I'm not available, that I get names of officers that they feel I can trust come to their homes. I will find the officer and say, I'm going to send this officer. You can trust him. Just let him do what he needs to do. But this is one officer I trust to work with those on the spectrum. People on the spectrum like Marcus, Maria's son. Oops. Hold on one second. Maria, how you doing? Maria is one of those people who now has Officer Zink on speed dial. Okay, where are you at? After the incident between Marcus and the Metro Transit officers last year, Officer Zink okay. reached out directly to their family. Sounds good. Thanks, Maria. I asked Maria to stop by the studio to talk with me and Officer Zink. 
when you first met him, did you trust him? I didn't trust anybody, but I was willing to give him a chance when I found out his situation at home was similar to mine. Marcus didn't want to have anything doing with it, but, you know, we discussed ways of things that Marcus is interested in, what his likes and dislikes are, how we could better improve on him talking to the officers. After you think, what was what was your experience when you first met um, Maria, knowing what uh, she and her family had already well, been through? I, I felt the resistance, and I understood the resistance. And that whole situation, it didn't turn out well, and it it shouldn't have turned out that way. And I want to have Maria to be able to say, Officer Zank, we're having an issue today. Can you stop by? Maria, when Officer Zank comes over, uh, what do you all do? What does he do with Marcus? He comes over when Marcus is having a bad day, when he's tore up my walls, put holes through the doors. He's been there for a lot of things. He takes Marcus out of the home so he can get himself together and everything. And how does he uh, feel about police officers now? It helped a little bit, but he's still having nightmares, the fears, the shakes, the sweats of any other officer other than them. Is it hard for you to trust still? With Officer Zink's help, it's getting a little bit easier, but no, I still don't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. That's understandable, and it, it and I agree with her. It it's like any relationship. Once that relationship's been betrayed, the amount of effort it takes to get that trust back is large, and. There's no expectation that trust is going to be gained in six weeks, six months, six years, or or 60 years. It's you, Even though you may not have it back right away, you still have to work to get that trust back. That's Officer Robert Zink talking with Maria Caldwell. Officer Zink was named the St. Paul Police Department's Officer of the Year in 2016. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios. The team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. You can find more episodes of Death, Sex, and Money, including the one where I shared my story, by visiting deathsexmoney.org or subscribing to this podcast in iTunes. Leave a review while you're there. This was Officer Zink's first time being a guest on a radio show, but he has had some experience in front of a microphone. Hey, we're cops. We're not, if we're going to PA or a mic, it's like, this is the St. Paul Police. Please disperse. <laughs> I'm Diane Gil-Morris, in for Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.